You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 481. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station. And in this slightly longer podcast, we're talking about adventure and what it can mean to different people. Everywhere you look these days, the words adventure and challenge seem to leap out at you from every crevice. TV, radio, magazines, social media and charities are all banging on about you undertaking some kind of challenge or having an adventure, either for yourself or to benefit others. Everything from crewing a yacht across the ocean, climbing a 2,000-metre peak, cycling the breadth of a country, running through the desert, swimming an ocean and so on. The typical accepted challenge has to be big. It has to be tough. It has to be uncomfortable and ideally quite miserable at times for it to be classed and accepted within the media as a true adventure. Or does it? Alistair Humphreys, someone who we might typically think of as a professional adventurer, has done all kinds of extreme things involving many of these adjectives. Just look at his biog in the show notes. It's a pretty impressive CV. You may have seen or heard him in the media recently extolling the virtues of micro-adventures, which puts these mini-challenges within reach of so many more people. Suggestions that sleeping on the top of a local hill for just one night will challenge many just as deeply as climbing that 2,000-metre peak would be for others. Stepping out of your comfort zone, walking in the woods at night, skinny dipping in the river, sleeping under the stars, singing in public, and so on, means facing up to your biggest fears. And this could be just as much of a rewarding personal adventure as taking one of the established epic big trips. Therefore, I ask, is adventure and challenge really more about stepping out of your comfort zone, exposing yourself to vulnerability, to risk, to fear and uncertainty? Alistair decided to do just that. He wanted to take himself to the edge and step off. Taking some of his own advice, he decided to follow Laurie Lee's trail in his 1930s book As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning, sharing the same spirit as the great man himself. That is, to empty his pockets of everything but his passport, put the absolute basics in a rucksack, wear just the clothes on his back, buy a violin, and with no musical skill, make his way across Spain, living purely on the money he earned from busking. Oh, and he only started violin lessons six months before. The purpose of my adventure in Spain was to try to um, scare myself and surprise myself and... um, have a genuine thrilling adventure, which I realized is something that I hadn't had for quite a few years in doing more traditional outdoorsy stuff, hiking, running, biking, camping kind of stuff. Um, And the reason was that I'd done so much in the outdoors that I'm quite good at it as you, as anyone should be after 20 years. And once you get good at something, then it loses the elements of some of its uncertainty and surprise. And so 
what I wanted to try and do was find a way to go back to being a beginner and to have that thrill of a blank slate and no idea what's going to happen. And just like you do on your very first big adventures, whatever they might be. So that was the initial idea for Spain. How can I look a bit differently at what adventure means to me and how can I get maximum maximum terror was what I was after, really. I suppose it would be true to say that due to technology and the amount of data that's around these days for people in whatever area they wish to test themselves adventure-wise, it actually has, I'd say, become easier. You still have to physically do it, but the information is there. And I think the the impression that this book has left on me and what I've seen so far is how um, much more challenging it is to have less and not more. Yeah, I think um, the information age we live in is a, a mixed blessing in many ways and it's it's great in that it facilitates more people getting into the outdoors and if you're planning a trip you can plan it to and whatever level of um, of paranoia um you you have so you can really plan 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 and there's a time and a place for that of course but equally in adventure there's a time for uh, spontaneity and controlled chaos and by that i mean just trying to trust yourself to figure out whatever might happen and therefore to just sort of throw yourself on the mercy of of the adventure a little bit more and some some situations lend themselves to that more than others but i think the good thing about traveling in a country where it's about the interactions you have with people as much as anything else is that the more relaxed you can be the more open to detours and diversions and random suggestions the the better your uh, your adventure will be and and the more that you're stuck to some sort of fixed itinerary or some fixed plan in your head of what the trip is supposed to be, I think that becomes a much more limited experience than just turning up somewhere. So when I my walk through Spain, I I didn't really look at the map of where I was walking until day one, uh, when I unfolded the map and saw, oh, I've got about 500 miles to go. This looks interesting. And, and just having that um, the freedom to follow my nose made it a really special experience. So for our listeners who perhaps wouldn't be aware of the original book that inspired you, just give us a little bit of an overview for people who are coming to this for the first time about the, the story and your part in it. In 1935, a young Englishman called Laurie Lee, who you might remember from your school day readings of Side with Rosie, um, his um, when he grew up a bit. Uh, he was 19. He decided that he wanted to go on a big adventure, as a lot of young people do. So he walked out one midsummer morning, it's the title of the book, um, to head out into the world. And he ended up walking across Spain in the 1930s, playing his violin to to earn the money he needed for his trip. And the story he wrote about it is a, it's a beautiful, poetic, pretty simple adventure. You know, nothing particularly drastic happens. But I first read it when I was a student and it just really captured my imagination. It's beautiful writing and it had this simplicity of adventure, which I, I really yearn for, just embracing whatever happens, sleeping on hilltops and just being out in the world. And ever since I'd read the book, I've dreamed of doing that trip myself. I thought for years it would make a great book to go follow him. It would make a great film to do it. But 
in order for it to have a sense of adventure, I felt I had to have the violin. You know, if I turned up and just followed Laurie Lee's walking route through Spain with my wallet, that would feel to me like a sort of pensioner's walking holiday. And I'm not, I'm not yet quite ready for those. So to have an adventure, it needed the violin to give it that sense of um, urgency. But I can't play the violin or any other musical instruments. And actually performing in public, doing musical stuff is one of my greatest fears, embarrassments. I hate karaoke. I hate dancing. That just terrifies me. So I realized that I kept putting it off for years and years and years and years. And eventually, after about 15 years of being a pathetic wimp, I finally said to myself, I need to do this. If I want to try and get a different take on adventure, what I need to do is something that will scare me. I need to try and learn the violin. So I learned, learned for seven months, which I realized is no way near sufficient time to get any good at the violin. I was absolutely terrible, but I turned up in Spain with no money at all, only my violin, and set out to try and follow his route as far as Madrid, seeing if I could survive only with the money I earned from busking. So the romance started the day that you set foot in Spain. And it's interesting to refer back to your previous comment about the simplicity of things, of looking at the map for the first time when you arrived there. That strikes me as really taking it right to the edge of possibilities. And I've watched your video clips of your first performance. And I really, really felt for you. I'll play a bit in a second on on the podcast. I really felt for you and you went through that uh, terror that we all do when we just expose ourselves completely in front of a, 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 an unknown audience. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, the, the fact that I literally didn't look at the map is blasé and nonchalant, but that goes to show, you know, I've, I've spent 20 years of my life walking through the countryside, looking at maps, finding hills to sleep on. I do that a lot. So in that sense, none of that is the adventure for me. It's I'm completely comfortable. I could get on my bike now with a passport and cycle to China. I've done that before. Um, but what I haven't done before is stand up in a small village square with no money in my pocket and think, crikey, if I want to eat today, I have to play. And it's very interesting when I talk to people about this trip, because if you talk about something like rowing in the Atlantic Ocean, people sort of, you can grasp that, okay, that sounds quite scary in a storm. And yet when I talk about violining in a little square, that really connects with people in a much deeper way. Just that sense of embarrassment and shame and worrying what people think about us. And it seems that all these primary school playground fears we used to have, it seems that we we don't grow out of them as adults at all. And that first morning when I stood up to play was just an absolutely mortifying, humiliating, frightening experience. And I was just desperately trying to think of an excuse. How can I give up this stupid idea and get out of it with some shred of dignity intact? I think combined with that, you were also recording yourself undertake this moment in your life and for to show people that to I think everybody like me in the audience when they see that must be really sitting there going oh god (laughs) that has got to be the worst 
Let's take a moment, dear listener, to paint some pictures here. Six months prior to his departure for Spain, he found an unsuspecting local violin teacher and explained quite enthusiastically his big plan. My plan is next summer to walk across Spain on my own yeah. with no credit card or money wow. and just my violin busking to, yeah. to live and eat. Yeah. Do you think that's possible in six months? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I've done grade two piano oh, when I was about ten yeah. and I hated it. first screech then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is worse than I thought it was going to be. Oh man. You stop. <laughs> what am I doing? This is a really terrible idea. And so Alistair arrived in Spain six months later, penniless and hungry, he set up his music stand in a small square where a few patrons were sitting chatting quietly on benches. He was now about to play in public for the very first time. I'm feeling like an absolute idiot right now. So recording a trip is, um, well, that's a, a conversation itself, which we may or may not choose to have. Um, but I really enjoy filming my experiences. But there was a certain irony in this trip in that it was a deliberately minimalist, penniless, simple month under the stars. But at the same time, I was also lugging around half a rucksack full of very expensive cameras and tripods. So it makes a lot more work for yourself. Um, but so I, so I think it, it's um, not something to undertake lightly, deciding to film your adventures. But I, it's a creative side that I really love. Well, we'll certainly come on to um, the contents of your rucksack later on. There's definitely something there there to talk about. And I'm, I'm with you because it's the sort of thing that uh, I, I do myself. Um, the the again coming back to the to the listeners, what is the 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 route that this journey um, encapsulated? So it's, uh, Lori Lee arrived in a town called Vigo, which is in northwest Spain. It's close to the much more famous uh, Santiago de Compostela, and the route that he, I, uh, that Lori Lee took roughly goes from there to Madrid. It's a similar sort of route and similar landscapes to the very famous Camino de Santiago, but minus any infrastructure or 
millions of pilgrims. So I had the beautiful hills of Galicia to myself. Um, Loyalie continued south from Madrid to um, all the way down to the Mediterranean. I got to Madrid. I had a, a month away and then I had to, sorry, I was delighted to come back to my family and to, to real life again. So I just did the first 500 miles of, of Laurie's route. And the just to, again for to a clarity's sake, the map did it give you you know the Spanish version of footpaths or bridleways or what sort of um, tracks were available to you? So I took two maps uh, as just partly out of habit and as an old fashioned person, I took a, a Michelin uh, paper map. I think it was about one to four hundred thousand. It was that is that essentially they're touring maps I used to use when I cycled around the world. Uh, but far more useful was the View Ranger app, um, which I had on my phone. And with that, I had the Spanish version of Ordnance Survey, and which was brilliant. And it meant that um, I could do the vast majority of the trip off-road on um, footpaths and bridleways and old droving roads, the cañadas uh, that the sheep get uh, moved along. So a large amount of it was off-road or on very small little tiny little roads so is there again for people considering doing something like this is there a good network to explore like that oh it was so beautiful i absolutely loved it particularly galicia the first few hundred miles of the trip and then also the the sierra de guadarrama the mountains just north of madrid between uh, madrid and segovia that would be a, a few days of absolutely beautiful hiking um which i can highly recommend um, if you take it, basically gives you you have a choice how much infrastructure and planning you want. If you so you can go from one extreme, which is the Camino de Santiago, which has got a, which is a brilliantly mapped out network of footpaths with hostels and places to stay and and people you'll meet and infinite amount of information on the internet. Or you can do what I did, which is just turn up and follow your nose and wander around and sometimes you win with that and you get wonderful bits sometimes you end up on a bit of a dead end or walking down a road for a couple of hours but uh, I had a lovely time just following my nose through really really pretty countryside it actually reminded me a lot of Yorkshire Dales but Yorkshire Dales with sunshine which is a, a good combination <laughs> a rare one as well um yeah. the the um your daily activities then, um, obviously you were playing your violin, uh, I lose that term loosely, you were playing the <laughs> violin to, to earn a crust and, and feed yourself and, and exist and you were presumably not paying for any accommodation if you had that enough amount of money, you were wild camping as, as such. So just just talk us through, you know, your once you get out of the big city, because the big city is obviously um, a, a different lifestyle, I guess. But once you were sort of out of, out of town and uh, started to go through the villages, how how did your day break down? Did you sort of play in every place you went through, or did you stop for the just do in the evenings or the mornings? How did how did it work? Um, I had a rule which was whenever I earned money, I had to spend it all immediately, um, and I did that so that the next time I arrived in a town tomorrow, I would be back to zero, back to hungry and frightened and vulnerable again. So it was quite a feast or famine approach to the trip um essentially i'd walk all day usually about 20 miles or so uh camp out in the evenings um i, I never uh, had enough money for accommodation but spain in the summer it was lovely camping out i i didn't have a tent just sleeping in my sleeping bag uh washing in rivers um cooking on small little fires 
and um, and then every day or two, depending on the map, really, I drop down from the hills into a small little village to play. Um, and the pl- playing would really just depend upon the village. So Spain, <laughs> Spain likes to do an incredible amount of sleeping. There, there are very few hours of the day when there are people outdoors in the Spanish village, which is very frustrating for a, a, a more routine Englishman. So ideally, I needed to arrive in a town in the couple of hours around lunchtime when people were out to do their shopping. And I would play them and then uh, for a couple of hours and then there's a huge lull when everyone just goes back to bed for their long afternoon siesta. At first, I would try and do Englishmen marching on through the midday sun, but the Spanish sun in Spain, well, there are, there's a reason people have siestas. Uh, it would demolish me. So I, I would have very long siestas sitting under a tree. And then when the evening cooled a bit, I'd do a few more miles, hopefully get to a town where I could play. Um if the town's t- if the village is too small often i'd walk into the village my heart would just sink i think there's no way i can earn anything here and i just have to keep walking put myself on half rations and keep going until i got to the next village where i could play um evening busking's nice because spanish people come out into the cool hours um and then once i once i'd earn some money i'd go spend it all on food walk out of town and sleep and eat and get up in the morning and do it all again um every day for a month and what sort of amount of money did you earn then, or, or rather, what were you able to buy with the money that you earned roughly on a daily basis? I was so rich. I lived like an absolute king. It was, you know, I, you've heard how bad I am at playing. I'm terrible. I genuinely doubted whether I'd earn any money. I was honestly expecting on this trip to have to uh, rummage in dustbins or nick pizza crusts from a outside cafe tables or pinch carrots in the field i was honestly expecting to have to <laughs> do quite a bit of that but to my amazement in a month i earned 120 euros uh, which averages out to four euros a day which you can live like an absolute king for that so i was eat- sometimes eating not only bread but also bananas banana sandwiches um cooking rice in the evening um yeah i was just astonished by what a decadent experience I had. 120 euros is more money than any man needs for a month of life. Phenomenal, phenomenal. <laughs> and what, I mean, did you ever go to bed hungry? Um, I had a few nights of carrot sandwiches. <laughs> um, but no, not really. I, I quite often had to go to half rations um, when, the, when a village was too small to play in. But, you know, I was really conscious that I was doing the trip I wanted to write a book about this and I was really conscious as I was walking along. I was thinking, this book's going to be terrible because nothing bad is happening. <laughs> I'm just having a wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh, this is just amazing. Um, so no, no, nothing bad happened at all, really. And um, I only stole one carrot from a field. And I did that just out of greed because they look quite juicy and nice. You met, I presume, other musicians uh, on the, along the way. Uh, how were you received? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the first day I was too scared to busk so I kept walking around the town for hours just procrastinating and I saw eventually this other busker playing his recorder and he was terrible really rubbish and he was really rubbish buskers but I looked at him with this sense of awe I just thought wow you can play music you are daring to play music and I looked in his hat and I thought you have earned money I just was in complete awe of this guy um 
eventually I, I did get on to do it myself. A few other times I met uh, musicians. I met a couple of um, Romanian, there's a lot of Romanians in Spain. I met a couple of R- Romanian buskers who had, who were um, giving me some tips and then were quite astonished at how bad I was. Uh, my favorite event though is one day I walked into a small town and I was drawn by the sound of music and I found uh, this guy playing the guitar. I started to chat with him. Um, he and his family, they bought me a beer. I thought I needed to repay their kindness by um, performing for them. So there were a few people out there by now sort of playing guitars and mouth organs, and I tried to accompany them. And I was really excited by this. I thought, this is finally my chance to live the Laurie Lee dream, you know, to a Spanish street party on a sunny afternoon. Perfect. But <laughs> I could not. When another instrument was playing, I could not keep up at all. So after about five very embarrassing minutes, I gave up and failed. So my dreams of actually being a proper music musician were a bit of a disaster. But everything else about the trip went well. I thought I watched that uh, video clip. I presume that's the video clip that you sent me. And <laughs> the funniest part was the guy that was, or one of the guys that was sitting down there was obviously trying to sing and you began playing and he covered his ears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I love I love that. I, I'd fixed a GoPro to the front of my violin. So violin cam, I thought of it as. And you can just see this guy <laughs> blocking up his ears to try and hold the tune. It's, yeah, it's hilarious. So you were uh, you were washing in rivers and streams, uh, the basics of of life, and I presumably using public toilets or whatever as you pass through the villages. Uh, was there any? Did anybody sort of show you any kindness or take any sympathy on you and let you sleep in their barn and that type of thing? I suppose if I had any disappointments about the trip, and this would be a very greedy one, it was that I had far less of that sort of hospitality that you often get on journeys such as this, which I've experienced in many countries and, and Laurie Lee experienced. And Spain is, Spain is in a terrible economic place. And what that means is that most villages and towns, all the young people, and by young, I mean anyone who's not a pensioner, have, has essentially left. So the villages are often like shells, ghost towns, just or like the likes of old age pensioner residential places. It's, it was quite sad in that sense. And and I suppose that sort of demographic were less likely to invite in this random smelly guy for the night. <laughs> um, so only once on the trip, I did get invited to stay with a family. And that was lovely to have a, a shower and to have a conversation. That was a really uh, fantastic part of the trip. But by and large, the kindnesses I received were just the conversations I had in towns and villages as I played, the little chats, um, occasionally cars stopping, winding down their windows, having a conversation with me. So people were very kind, but but I had lesser, say, integration than I might do. For example, when I walked through India and pretty much every hour you'll get you're, someone's taking you into their house to feed you up. I didn't I wasn't like that in Spain. You're obviously fairly fluent in Spanish. Is that something that you've done over the years? Pick that up? So I did Spanish GCSE at school, um, but but also I've I've sp- I spent three months cycling through Central America, three months in South America, and I when I cycle around the world, I spent almost a year cycling through South America, and then when I started the violin lessons for this trip, I also started um, Spanish lessons through a brilliant website called italki.com. So once a week, uh, I'd have a Skype, a video Skype call with some um, a lady in. Uh, Barcelona and we chat away for an hour um, 
And so by the time I got to Spain, my understanding was pretty good. It took me, my grammar is horrible <laughs> um, being self-taught, but I can understand pretty well. And I, I could pretty much just have a more or less a normal, proper, decent conversation about any subject in Spanish. Um, I didn't speak any English for the whole time. Um, and that that really adds to any travel experience. And it's actually from a personal thing. It's something I was really chuffed with to feel that, wow, I'm actually doing this. I'm properly just chattering away and understanding people in Spanish. So that, that was a really nice aspect to the trip. Yes, I was going to say that if you hadn't done that, it would have been perhaps uh, a little bit alien to uh, try and understand what was going on around you. At least you could appreciate the comments people were making. Yeah, and I could make little jokes and uh, explain why I was doing the trip and what I was doing. And you just get a bit deeper into the experience when you can actually talk to people. I've had I've had wonderful experiences in cultures where I can't speak a single word and you feel like you're an alien. And that's fun in its own way. But it's, it's, it's much nicer when you can actually make yourself understood. Definitely, definitely an interact. You're listening to The Outdoor Station, the home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. Since 2005, over 10 million people have listened and over 3 million have watched the videos. Sharing the passion, appreciation and understanding for the outdoors world. Well, time's moving on now, and I do want to to touch on on gear because, as I say, I, I empathise with you regarding the the technical side. Um, and I'm guessing, uh, I see you took a, an Osprey. I think it was about fifty litre pack, fifty, fifty eight, fifty five, something like that. Fifty five, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm I, I from the video clips, I surmised that half of it was technology, and the rest of it was fairly simple. So let's talk about the technology first of all, just so people understand the amount of work that can go into recording a trip with a view to obviously launching some sort of story at the end of it. Um, I'm guessing you had two cameras or three cameras? I had um, one sort of decent camera and then I had a couple of GoPro cameras. Um, it's, it's a real juggling act, being someone who loves filming and photography and wants to make something really beautiful – but also someone who has to carry all of this and deal with all the batteries. So um, I just, the compromise I made was to take one camera, which is a Sony A7, um, with just one lens, a 24 to 70. So it gave me a, a range of shots I could do, um, and it was sort of adequately beautiful stuff that it generates. And then I took a couple of GoPros, um, partly so that I could stick them on my violin um, and all the other places you often see GoPros. And the other reason was that I could have one clipped onto my rucksack. So if anything, if anything seemed to be about to happen, I could just quickly press record like a traffic policeman does just to try and capture that. Because one of the really hard things about trying to film a, a journey while you're actually experiencing the journey is that so often the good stuff happens before you've had time to press record. Um, I also carried one of the sacrifices I made for weights, I carried a, a pretty big, heavy uh, tripod, but I felt that would be worth it. Um, I had the micro, a little microphone that goes on the camera. Um, I had a microphone for my GoPro. I had a um, a um, radio mic, you know, the ones where you could, so it was 
there's quite often I'd set the tripod up and then I'd be quite a long way away on the other side of the village square with the with the microphone on. So um, I put because I was playing such beautiful music, <laughs> I put more effort into the audio side of things than I would often do. And, and I'm very glad I did that. Did you, I mean, all right, let's go back to the equipment for it. So you've got the, the A7 and you've got the GoPros. Uh, then you're going to have, what, a couple of spare batteries each. So you're going to have a chargers. Then you're going to have a uh, mains power supply. Then you're going to have a power block. And you're going to have a handful of leads. You've got the radio mics. You've got the mic leads. Um, or And you've got the rechargeable batteries or batteries for the mics as well. Uh, that's a sizable amount of weight. Yeah, and the solar panel to charge things with. Um, a couple of filters for the LED camera, an ND filter. Um, yeah, so there's quite a lot of weight and annoying clutter um, and the hassle, the curse of trying to get things charged. I learned quite a good trick, which was because um, I had a siesta every day, essentially, which sounds luxurious, but it's actually incredibly tedious when you have no money to spend, no music to listen to and no books to read. So what I would do is I'd find some little shop and just before they closed for siesta, I'd ask them, please, can I plug in all my stuff? And then I'd go sit in the shade for four hours until they opened up and then I'd be on my way. So that was essentially how I dealt with the charging and the solar, as always, was just seemed to be more hassle than it was worth. Um, so, I, yeah, quite a lot of camera gear. And for that reason, I completely cursed my choice of rucksack because I went for a small, lightweight, minimal rucksack which then meant it was completely jammed full every day, which is always annoying. And the shoulder straps were too lightweight, so it was agony as well. So I, I made the wrong choice there. So the rest of the kit that you had in your rucksack, uh, again, looking at your photographs and surmising, um, do do add where I've, I've missed anything off. You had, um, I presume, I think it was an Alp kit to tarp. Um, yes. It looked like an Alp kit to tan your mug. Um, yes. Uh, plastic spork of some kind. Uh, stolen from my baby child. <laughs> two two shirts, uh, trousers, and a no, shirt. No, one shirt. One shirt. I saw the rip yeah. at the end of it, so it obviously lasted the journey. Yeah, it was a good bit. It was a bit manky by the end. Yes, yeah, just the one one set of clothes. But I had two pairs of socks. Two pairs of socks. Okay, you're really going for it. Um, yeah. And uh, what sleeping mat? It was um, it was a thermorest. It was a foam mat, wasn't it? One of the eggshell mats. Yes. Yeah. Which I this was the Z ones, and I would. Um, my hips really started to hurt on this trip from getting old. So I, the good thing about those is you can fold them into a bit of a Z shape. So you sacrifice some head and foot length for triple thickness around your hips. So, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a quite a big fan of those of those roll mats. And a sleeping bag or a sleeping quilt? A very, very, very thin sleeping bag, which is lovely, really, really thin. And a silk liner to go in it for a bit of um, an illusion of warmth and comfort. Um I also had a raincoat, although it never rained. So looking at the contents of your rucksack then, uh, one simple question. What was the best piece of kit and what was the worst piece of kit? Well, the worst piece of kit was the rucksack. <laughs> but that actually, the fault of that was me having the wrong rucksack. So it's, it's almost unfair to blame the rucksack. But I did spend every day blaming the rucksack because it really hurt. Um, I think that's a bit of a false economy going for a really lightweight pack when you've got a long way to walk and it's jammed full with batteries. Um, so in a similar vein, I came to really appreciate the trekking poles. I had these uh, lecky folding ones um, and uh, I really found them very helpful for taking the strain off my knees um, and pointing, makes you feel important when you point at things with them. So I really, I liked those. Um, I just cooked on fires every evening. So I had a little flint to light the fire and then the, the small little pan. 
um, to to cook on and eat out of as well. Um, I really, apart from all of the tedious camera electronics, I really loved how ridiculously lightweight I went on this trip to just have essentially one pair of clothes. And it's, it's of course, it's nice being in Spain in the summertime for that. But that I really, really enjoyed knowing that. I'm pretty much using every item of kit every single day. You just really got the bare minimum, but that's all you need. And that's that's the that's the crux of it, isn't it? It's, it is about all you need. It's needs needs and wants, as a friend of mine used to say. It's all about needs and wants. Mm, well, yeah, and I try my best on. I I quite like the ascetic, masochistic simplicity of journey. So I try to deliberately have fewer wants than I might like. So I quite like to have stuff that I'm missing so I want to get home for a bit of comfort rather than trying to just pack loads of comfortable stuff and essentially take home with me. So one example of that is I really like it on a trip if a few nights I sleep a bit badly because I'm cold. Um, even when I you know put on all my clothes, even my raincoat, and you still have a couple of nights or a little bit of a shiver. And I, I actually quite like that because it makes me think, oh, good, I haven't brought too many clothes. Nearly all the time, I'm fine. Just occasionally, I'm a bit cold. Good. I've got the kit right on this one. And coming back to the meals, I know you cooked in the evenings. Was it just one meal a day that you had or did you sort of manage to scrounge something as you went went through the day? So the first thing I would buy whenever I earned money was a big loaf of bread. In most European countries, you get your big loaves of fresh bread in every village. So that was always a, a something that I, that was my first thing I'd always buy. In the evenings, I had a bag of rice, which lasted me for ages, or some pasta. And into that, I would just chuck, depending on how much I'd earned, um, either <laughs> nothing much at all, or a few carrots, onions, tomatoes, or um, a tin of tin of sardines if I was feeling pretty rich that day um, but generally throughout the day I'd eat bread uh, and bananas um, and peanuts are very cheap in Spain um, just whatever random fruit was out of date in the supermarket and about to be thrown away um, and then in the evening would be the one cooked meal I had so I didn't have I, so here's a want thing I didn't have any tea or coffee uh, but I which I often missed so in the evenings I'd just make myself a a pan full of hot water and, and pretend it was a cup of tea. And what about water, hydration, and and obviously having drinking water? How did you manage on that front? Uh, it was being Spain and a big hot place, I carried a Ortlieb water bag, a ten liter water bag, which has been one of my favourite bits of kit for about twenty years now. It's a I love the freedom it gives you, knowing that if needs be, you can carry ten liters of water. So I had that to top up in the evenings. I also had a, a camelback, you know, the, the things with the, um, like a bladder thing with a straw over my shoulders that I could drink as I was walking. Um, and, um, and yeah, that was it. So a two, big 10 litre bag and then the, the two litre bladder. But I rarely, you know, I was very rarely carrying 12 litres, but it was nice to know that I could if I needed to. Well, an extra 12K would have been great fun. Um, <laughs> the, no, what I was referring to was actually getting um, drinkable water. Where did you get your water from? Oh, I got my drinking water um, either most of the time just from um, 
cafes or oh i'll tell you where i got it from and when you asked that i thought i know the answer and then i couldn't think of it <laughs> uh, i got the water most days from the village fuente the village fountain uh, pretty much every village in spain has a, a, a central fountain which i presume was where originally everyone got their water from um and so yeah most villages i would just fill up from there dunk my head uh, soak my shirt and walk on and pretty much every village I got to I drink like a camel I just gulped down as much as I could so I didn't have to carry too much but yeah most of the times that's where I got my water oh I never realized that water was potable uh well I'm still alive <laughs> uh, I have to say I've always had a fairly reckless attitude to uh, water safety uh but yeah I think no no I think it is drinkable and also they're often very proud of it so I remember one village I started to fill up at this Fuente, and an old lady saying, "Oh, you should go to that. The other one's much sweeter water." But so she, so I had to walk about five hundred meters uphill, which I was really cursing to go to for this allegedly sweeter water. So um, no, I think I think it is drinking water. Cool. Well, it sounds like a, it sounds obviously it sounds like a fantastic um, journey and great experience for all a whole variety of different reasons compared to sort of. Uh, traditional in adverted commas adventures that uh, people expect as regards extremes um but the one thing i wanted to just touch on with you if i may is when did you actually start doing when you i know you cycled around the world that was your first big trip but when was that that my my cycling around the world was 2001 to 2005 um which is a long time ago now Indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, um, YouTube started in 2005 and Facebook, I think it was just before, it was just coming to the fore then. And what, when did you sort of manage to take the adventuring and, and turn it into or get the shock of actually turning it into some sort of income? <laughs> well, mentioning those two things, YouTube and Facebook, I'm so, I look back and I'm so glad that I cycle around the world firstly, before they existed, and also before I was doing it for a so-called job. And I was just cycling around the world because I wanted to cycle around the world. Um, I took 3,000 photographs in four years. Um, I nowadays quite regularly take more than that in a week when I'm off doing something for a magazine or something. So I, I'm very, very grateful about the style in which I got to cycle around the world. Um, but when I came back from that trip, I just, I wanted to write a book. So to pay for my life whilst I wrote the book, I started giving talks at primary schools about the countries and cultures and adventures I'd visited, all that sort of stuff, and gradually starting to um, earn a bit of money from it. So it's more or less started from 2005, thinking, I wonder if I can somehow turn this into my job. And like anyone self-employed, there are quite a few stressful early years when you're wondering where the next paycheck or in my case where the next talk or the next magazine article would come from but little by little I've built it up to where I now uh, I write books uh, I give talks I've started doing increasing numbers of films with and for brands um, and a lot of that is sort of short social media films um, and I've got fingers in sufficient pies to feel that I'm quite comfortable now in having made the adventure my job which I'm very very grateful for. Well, certainly, yes, the life of the self-employed is famine or feast, and no matter <laughs> no matter what stage you're at. And I was just just thinking, you know, you've you've your, your work and and your history of uh, of, of films and, and content has obviously inspired a lot of people uh, to do adventures in different formats. And I know you're very very keen at the moment pushing the the micro adventures thing. And as a result, obviously, there are people equally inspired by you to consider that it might make some sort of um, career from this. 
But if you were to start again yourself now, what advice would you give to yourself? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I would tell myself, thinking for my first big adventure, I'd tell myself to go more slowly, to accept more invitations, take more detours, and to stop being so hard on myself. I was just ridiculous. It was a ridiculous masochistic torture fest because I had this weird notion that if ever I was happy that meant I was no longer on, a, on an adventure I was on holiday and therefore for this to count as an adventure I must be permanently <laughs> permanently punishing myself so I tell myself to be a bit kinder to myself and then in terms of trying to make a career I would tell the younger me to just really concentrate on telling good stories get really good or as good as you can at photography and filmmaking and writing and just concentrate on doing those things really, really, really well. Don't go chasing the vanity metrics and the, and the numbers of likes and followers and all that sort of stuff. Because if you do the main things well, first of all, you keep some sort of sanity and integrity. And secondly, all of the other fluff the likes and the followers and the money follows along after that. So I think I would remind myself just to keep things the right way around. That's interesting. Uh, so looking at your current position, advising people or inspiring people to uh, seek adventure where they can, I am always a an advocate of if you're going to achieve something, there's usually a sacrifice you have to make somewhere along the way. Um, and it can take many forms, whether it's financial, money, uh, family, relationships, whatever. What do you find now, personally, is the is the hardest thing that you have to to uh, justify or quantify for yourself before you start a new project? Um, I think it's the the projection or well, it's a standard progression i think for most people in life is in that my projects used to be limited by a lack of money um and now that i'm uh, middle-aged they seem to be limited by a lack of time so i have to um think really hard about if what i'm doing does that justify the time that's going into it so time time is my biggest most precious thing that i try to be conscious about before embarking on on anything so for example i've been interested in the idea of starting a podcast as you're doing but i'm hesitant to do so because in my mind something needs to get removed from the schedule in order for me to do that okay my final question coming back to the 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 book itself and the journey itself um through spain of all the things i could have asked you about the trip what should i have asked you Oof. That in itself is a good question. Um, I think you should have asked me how, I think you should have said, you call yourself an adventurer, but all you've done is go on a pensioner's rambling holiday through Spain. That's not a proper adventure. Proper adventure is when you used to row oceans and cycle around the world. Well, that's a and statement, then, not, a, not a question. Come on, what would your so answer be to that? that? An insult, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, Slap me okay. with a fish. Okay, so maybe I would be terrible at a podcast if I can't ask questions. <laughs> so, but I think, I say, so that I think would be the question is that is, does this actually count as an adventure? Because it was something I was conscious of thinking, and, and at the moment, you know, I'm talking about this adventure. And I know that there are countless people who've done far, far longer walks and tougher journeys and all sorts of stuff. So, I did have, I did 
I was very conscious that the younger version of me would have sneered at this trip. But I think that's part of the part of the whole point of it was the the younger me wanted one thing out of adventure and the older me is looking for something very different. And and the thing that stood out for me time and again on that trip was just how casually I was walking hundreds of miles and camping outdoors and how nervous I was about standing up in front of five people in a village plaza. And I think the biggest lesson I took from the whole trip, which hopefully will help me in the years to come, was that the way I live adventurously has evolved and I imagine will continue to evolve as my as my life progresses. And I think see now seeing adventure through a very a much broader prism than just man walks over mountain has been a real revelation for me. It's a fine point Alistair makes. As time goes by, our idea of adventure evolves and the experience he describes in the book will hit the nail on the head for many readers, I'm sure. Please check out the show notes on the Outdoor Station for direct links to the book, My Midsummer Morning, images from his trip and to view his biography. My thanks to Alistair for joining me on this podcast and I hope you found it interesting and inspiring in some way. As always, feedback and comments are always welcome. So until next time, folks, take care out there and don't forget to have a little mini-adventure of your own. Until next time, folks, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.